0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 28th, 2022. Enough miserable subjects. We're going to cheer everybody up with a bit of music, a bit of fiction, a bit of fun. Um... A couple of weeks ago, I did a really fun interview, I thought, with a young female novelist, Alison Fairbrother. She has a new book out, a novel, first time novel, The Catch. It's a book about her fictional, although there's some non-fictional elements, I think, complicated relationship with an imaginary father who died, um, who loved uh, who'd loved uh, Van Morrison um and the book uh in our conversation she talked about van morrison's astral weeks being the greatest album ever made and there's a little reference in the book when she and her father are together and they play astral weeks on his 1996 jetta on a tape deck music makes us i think nostalgic uh makes us romantic and and that's where we're going today with another first-time novel by another extremely talented young female writer, uh, Emma Brody. The book is just out in paperback. It came out last year in hardback. It's called Songs in Ursa Minor. Um, It's just out, beautiful new paperback, lovely imagery. I think many of our audience will have already read it, but if you haven't, you need to go out and get it now. This is Emma's first interview for the paperback. So as I said uh, congratulations Emma on being a, a paperback writer you've gone one step beyond uh, uh, you've gone one step beyond uh, Alison Fairbrother she wrote a, a novel a first time novel with a musical theme you've written a a first time musical novel Tell me about this wonderful book that you've authored uh, Songs in Ursa major wonderful title as well
1: thank you um Well, Songs in Ursa Major is the story of Jane Quinn, who is an up and coming folk artist in the late 60s, early 70s, and she lives on an island off the coast of Massachusetts, where she is in a garage band, essentially, but through a series of fateful events, she ends up stepping into the spotlight at the headlining spot of her local music festival and taking over for Jesse Reed, who's the super hot new singer, songwriter, folk star of the day. And um, it turns out that Jesse has been in a motorcycle accident. He's recovering on the island and the two of them get to know each other. And as their relationship unfolds, their music develops, their relationship develops, and Jane ends up going on tour with Jesse. So the book sort of follows the trajectory of this relationship between these two stars and how it plays out both, you know, on stage and off, and also results in this groundbreaking seminal album, uh, Songs in Ursa Major, which Jane writes uh, basically in the second half of the book. So it, it was a blast to write, I have to tell you. Like I've always been really interested in this time period. And when I started working on it, it just it just flowed. It was just an absolute, absolute blast.
0: Well, and you can tell from the reading, just as uh, uh, Fairbrother's uh, novel it, it is built on, I think, her real relationship with her father. Mm. So your book, of course, is not just fiction. It's built around two extremely iconic, I think anyone who's iconic is extreme, two uh, iconic um, musicians, of female and, and, and male songwriters of the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, so these characters in your book, Emma, they're not just fictional inventions, are they? they? They're based on two real people.
1: Yeah. So I was very inspired by James Taylor and Joni Mitchell. Um, I, you know, I loved them. I grew up listening to them, but I kind of thought of them as separate and um, I was reading Carly Simon's autobiography when I started researching for this book because I knew that James Taylor and Carly could have a piece. Like I knew, I, I part of the book takes place on this island, which is based on Martha's Vineyard and James and Carly have a strong connection to the island and I was reading up on them. And, right, and James
0: and Carly, of course, a little, we can tell from this YouTube, they were uh, celebrity Celebrity uh, in a celebrity marriage before there was such a thing as a celebrity marriage.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, Maybe even the prototype. They were writing about each other and just superstars at the time. Um, And I had always known about their relationship and I had always assumed that uh, You Can Close Your Eyes, which is actually a song that the two of them sing together in that documentary you just pulled up, um, was written about Carly. But it turns out which I found out through a one line, just sort of side comment in Carly's autobiography, that song was originally written for Joni Mitchell, who JT had dated before. And when I realized that they had been an item, and not only that they'd been an item, but they'd had this profound influence on each other's groundbreaking albums, like JT sings backup on Blue. He plays guitar in three songs and several of the songs are written about him and likewise Joni sings on Mudslide Slim album. and it's one of those weird things where people single great song of his was on Sweet Baby James but Mudslide Slim had you've got a friend like it's an amazing album and it's it's the one he won the grammy for um just just recasting all these songs as about each other and having been influenced by each other opened up so much in my brain. I just, I just was fascinated to sort of piece together what might have happened. And then before long, I had so many theories that it had taken on kind of a life of its own. Like it was no longer really about either of them, although you can still recognize so much inspiration from them in the book, like their stage personas, certain musicality features of each performer. Um, And then there's a lot that you could pick apart if you really wanted to open up a biography. Emma, I have
0: to ask, I don't want to talk too much about Carly Simon, but of course. Uh, in my view, at least, and I, I think most people would agree, she's not in the same league, perhaps not even in the same sport as as Joni Mitchell, but she is very famous for one song, You're So Vain, and apparently she said it was about three men, one of whom was Warren Beatty. Uh, right. Any guesses about the other two? Could it have been James Taylor?
1: Uh, I could not have been James Taylor because I think it predates their relationship. Okay. Um, I, I always wonder if there's a reference to Sean Connery, because I know that she dated him. And then the third verse, there's that little aside about an underworld spy. Um, so I kind of wondered if it might have been a reference to him. But she, yeah, she raffled off the answer. I think it was to verse one. So there is someone who knows. Well, <laughs> um, the, not she me. certainly <laughs> had
0: two of the sexiest men of the 60s, uh, Sean Connery and, uh, and Warren Beatty. I don't know if they were the nicest, but
1: yeah yeah i mean she also had jack nicholson like carly carly had a moment in time where she was just like a gal about town in new york um and in la and yeah i definitely recommend her autobiography uh what is it boys in the trees
0: yeah Um, emma what is it about your generation and Joni mitchell my son who is fairly i think of your generation absolutely adores Joni Mitchell. He thinks Blue is the greatest album ever made. And I think he spends his whole life listening to Joni Mitchell. Is there something about her work that particularly resonates, do you think, with your generation?
1: It's very specific and it's very truthful, I think, in a way that a lot of her contemporaries weren't. So JT's lyrics are, for the most part, pleasant. Like he really pushes the envelope with fire and rain. But I would say that that's the most revealing and specific he gets. Like, what is it? Knocking Around the Zoo is technically about his experiences in McLean, but like you would never necessarily know what that song was about unless you had sort of the key code for it. Whereas I think a lot of Joni's confessions are just, I mean, they're gorgeous poetry, like you could just read them as a book. Um, In fact, there is a book, Morning Glory on the Vine, that's an illustrated version of some of her lyrics, highly recommend that for any Joni fans. Um, And then I think with Blue in particular, there's an aspect to that album that I think predicts a certain kind of vulnerability that we all now experience after a breakup, which essentially back in the day, only celebrities would experience. And by this, I mean, we are now all on social media. So if we go through anything in our personal or professional lives, there's a paper trail, we, there's a certain amount of inescapability. Whereas when Joni was young and dating all these different amazing, she also had a lot of amazing celebrity boyfriends. Um, she would have to see them after in magazines and and in the press in a way that most people at that time wouldn't, because basically you broke up with someone and like, The worst they could do is send you a bunch of letters but you didn't have to look at images of them moving on with their lives or or follow closed tabs so i think now what was a very specific experience to a celebrity and to Joni when she wrote blue which is her heartbreak album and it's it's all about you know like the first blushes of love and then watching it grow and then the pain of watching someone in
0: 1971 of course
1: exactly um into into disillusionment um now that's something we all have to do. Now we all have our our noses pressed up to the glass, but she was having to watch JT get married to Carly, and in a way that so, no so tell me
0: the your interpretation at least of this relationship. She was the one who was who had her heart broken, in your view,
1: in the in the in real life, you mean? Well,
0: in both in in the I don't want to give too much away about the novel because anyone who hasn't read it needs to read it. So don't give away the whole plot, but um.
1: Well, so my who, who
0: broke whose heart in this relationship between Taylor and Mitchell?
1: I mean, they it's interesting. There's actually a lot more on record now since the 50th anniversaries of Sweet Baby James and Blue have just happened. Um, and they've both done interviews now that they're like in their 70s, um, where basically there was nothing on their relationship for like 50 years. So there actually is a lot more information about it. And basically, um, My book is an inversion of their relationship. Like in real life, Joni was famous before James. They met at the Newport Folk Fest and essentially they were up on stage. They were both grouped with the young performers, which I think they were both kind of pissed about. And Joni forgot the lyrics to a song and JT stepped in to help her. And then they dated for about a year. Um, And so throughout that, I'm not saying anything that isn't public record. JT struggled with heroin addiction um, and Joni wanted to help and essentially at one point she did walk away from him um but i think it wasn't a clean break and carly in the autobiography talks about how she would try to call and he was very cold to all of his exes so i think they went through a period where they continued to write music about each other but they were no longer speaking and then at some point their friendship recovered um i mean it's been 50 years so i don't know at what point they moved past their personal grievances, but they both went on to like. JT has been married three times. Joni, I think, has been married twice. Um, but through it all, they've sort of come back to each other, and there, are, you know, hundreds of videos of them performing each other's music at various venues over the decades, and it's it's really wonderful. Like it's it's amazing that both of them went on to have such profound as you you said the word iconic like iconic trajectories. Because um, like, what are the odds? What are the odds? Yeah, I, mean? I have
0: to admit, I'm not convinced. about I, I certainly would agree on uh, on on Joni Mitchell. I'm not convinced on James Taylor. I mean, he was maybe an iconic figure, but as a as an artist, I'm not convinced. But maybe you can convince me.
1: Well, I think he's pretty relevant. Like he's still touring. Um, I'm actually going to see him on Saturday, which I'm pretty excited about. I've never seen him live, and he's never released an album that sold. I hope he sings a song movies.
0: for you, Emma. You put him back in the news.
1: <laughs> no, he put himself in the news. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just be fangirling on the lawn with my parents who were his original fans.
0: <laughs> That's one of the ironies, though, Emily, uh, Emma, um, is your generation and your, you, you know, you're going to this James Taylor concert at the weekend with your um, with your uh, with your parents. I went to see Bob Dylan with my son in New Orleans uh, a couple of months ago. What is it about your generation liking the same music as your parents?
1: I don't know. Do you like the same music as your parents?
0: Definitely not. I couldn't stand it. I mean, anything my parents liked, I would smash.
1: And the same was true
0: of of the Taylor Mitchell Dylan generation.
1: I would say, I mean, so I'm 33. um, And I definitely had a phase where I would reject what they had, but... A, my parents both have really good taste. So at a certain point, you're just cutting off your nose just about your face um, if you don't listen to their music just because it's their music. And I think that we just have a lot more accessibility. Like, we have music streaming, like, basically... Right, but
0: Kurt Anderson, I don't know if you know his work, he's a nonfiction writer, journalist. Uh, he wrote an interesting essay about 10 years ago suggesting that over the last 50 years, nothing much has changed in culture in dress everything's changed with technology so the real difference between say your generation and my generation your generation and your parents generation is technology and not Mm -hmm. what we like or what we wear or even what we say
1: i think that's fair i think that's totally fair and i think with the technology and the influx of information people are able to make choices um on an individual level about so many different things that on the one hand, I think that can kind of subvert, subvert creativity. If you're constantly being bombarded with tons of information, like the part of your brain that makes executive decisions is also the part that fuels whatever creative enterprise. So there might be a very real like chemical piece to this, where we no longer have the same availability to think our own thoughts. But I think also at the same time, You're able to draw upon fashion choices, music choices, art choices, design choices from so many different decades at once, because it's no longer like waiting for the rerun or trying to find, you know, a vintage life article like I'm also a book editor, and I work in illustrated nonfiction and even 10 years ago when I was starting to put my first books out. If we wanted to do a vintage collage we would have to go to thrift stores and buy the collages and cut them up and scan them in and now the repository of images online is is it just grows every day it's amazing so i think that can both help fuel creativity but also stunt it because if you have every single possibility that's ever come before at your fingertips, you could spend your entire life just learning what's already happened as opposed to trying to invent something new. And I think figuring out the balance with that is gonna be a challenge for everyone moving forward.
0: Emma, we had, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, uh, the, the singer songwriter, Mary Gaultier on the show a few months ago, she has a book out called Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting. Hmm. Your book is also about songwriting and about female artists one thing that might have changed over the last 50 years is female artists and certainly women are, are more prominent uh, Alison fairbrother was co- uh, comfortable describing her novel as a feminist one would you describe yours sure. uh, songs in ursa major as a feminist uh, uh novel i mean it's presented as one by your publisher but maybe that's just with the intention of its selling <laughs>
1: Um, I love that we're at the point where branding something as feminist is viewed as commercial because I feel like, again, like 10 years ago, that would have been like, oh, do we want to use the word feminist? That might put it in a niche. Um, I definitely think it's a feminist novel. Jane's entire family are women. She's part of a matriarchy. Um, Jane also takes on you know, the role of sort of gladiator for her gender when she's dealing with the sexism within the record company. Um, and finally, I think like just the way that she interacts with the men in her life that are allies, they're all pretty much meetings of equals and she expects a certain amount of respect. And I think some of the more feminist touches in the book are actually modeled by the men. Um, Like there's a scene that I really love early on where Jane's cousin Maggie has had a baby and they have this group of friends that's essentially Jane's band and all the guys are over helping make dinner and cook. It's kind of a, a feminist fantasy. So one of her her bandmates is in a floral apron and they're all taking turns making dinner and doing housework, which I just love. So yeah, it's definitely a celebration of of subverting certain gender norms and then promoting other, other you know, breakout ideas.
0: Do you think that at, at that time, I mean, Joni Mitchell was, it was and is such a great artist that men perhaps like James Taylor, who certainly was talented, but but as I suggested, probably not in her league. Do you think there was a degree of envy, of discomfort with an artist of, of, of such remarkable originality and talent as Joni Mitchell?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you can find photos of different fabulous artists. Like there's this amazing picture of Eric Clapton watching Joni play the guitar. I think it's 1966. Um, also at Newport, but a different year than the one we were talking about, where he's just watching her and, like, the expression on his face is just this combination of dumbfoundedness and and pure raw envy. Um, the sessions where she's playing guitar with Bob Dylan, like, there's such competitiveness there. Um, and I think, like, yeah, some it's of her... The Scorsese
0: film just came out of that tour where there was some remarkable footage of that.
1: Yeah, no, and I think I, you know, listening to a lot of Joni interviews, which I've done, I definitely think that as she got older, like some of the pain that she might have had to subvert when she was younger about, you know, being overlooked or dismissed or her talent being, um, I don't know. Described as less than what it was, or painted as cute, or marginalized. I think that that became a much heavier burden on her heart as she as she got older and yeah, I, I can imagine. I
0: mean, I, I just rewatched one of the great movie uh, music movies, *The Last Waltz*. Um, and what's astonishing about it is, she, I think she's the only female artist there. I mean, everybody else is there from you know, Neil Young to Bob Dylan to Van Morrison. And she's the only woman there. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like.
1: You know, it's interesting. Like, I think she would have been proud. <laughs> like, I think Joni wanted to be, like, first in her class and the one and only. Um, but as, you know, more modern viewers looking at it, it's like, yeah, why, why, why wouldn't you include, like, Joan Jett or, like, Jefferson's airplane like why wouldn't you bring in some of these other people it's fascinating um and I think I still see that like there was an article that came out at the end of last year I think it was a times piece that was essentially listing like the 50 greatest guitarists and from that era, Joni was the only one. And I'm like, you can't tell me that she's the only one. <laughs> like, Carly could play guitar. Like, she was fine. She wasn't, like, like groundbreaking. But neither were some of these other men on the list. So, um, Yeah, it's interesting
0: you mentioned uh, Eric Clapton. He was uh, in The Last Waltz. And his politics haven't exactly distinguished himself recently. What about politics, Emma? Um, my old friend Jonathan Tapin, who actually produced... Uh, The Last Waltz, and was Dylan's original tour manager, Uh, was on the show recently, has a new book out called The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, from his years in those days. He argues that politics has changed, that music used to be central to politics, and it's lost it. Are you, I mean, I don't know what your politics are, but do you think we've lost something from having... Major artists like Joni Mitchell uh, being so unambiguously explicitly political, whereas today's artists are much much harder to actually understand what they're saying.
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, the period that I researched, which was Blue, essentially, um, and the two albums that became for before. Um, Joni was decidedly not political at that Um. time. And so was JT. Like they both, like it was sort of at this moment, there's this amazing Time article where James Taylor has the cover and it basically describes how rock and roll had yelled itself out and how these more mellow, soul searching individuals, singer, songwriter, folk artists were taking center stage simply because they weren't as political, like on Blue. Um, there's basically one tiny little political reference, and it's uh, California. She talks about, like, the politicians and reading how the news sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. Maybe that was just a dream some of us had. But it's incredibly casual, and she doesn't really – Well,
0: I I, I think everybody remembers. I'm not sure if it's casual, if it's – it's memorable, maybe –
1: But my point is more that it's not like, she's not really trying to say anything with that. Like that song is really about her relationship to like whoever she just broke up with. And the fact that California is her real home and she wants to come home. So I guess what I'm saying is like, she's not really taking any political stands in that album, Um, which isn't to say that she didn't later become much more outspoken. But I guess what I would say is like, it's less of a sort of one way linear trajectory and more of an ebb and flow where certain climates you know bring more politics into the music, whereas others promote more escapism or just downright ignoring what's happening and yeah I think with social media. Like I, I, the person that I always think of for this is Taylor Swift, who was so apolitical during the Trump election and got a lot of criticism for it. And then when he was up for re-election, decided that she was going to actually voice her opinions and try to mobilize her base, um, which I think is a good example of how, you know, it's not stagnant, like things are constantly changing and performers are constantly having to juggle whether popularity is more important to them or like actually trying to promote the agendas they feel strongly about
0: emma talking of california um you're talking to me from martha's vineyard which of course a little bit of california on the east coast um <laughs> uh, i'm joking of course um the book a lot of the book takes place on other than the narrative on martha's vineyard but california was the center of this musical uh, world um uh, we had Ron Brownstein on the show. He has a, came out last year, really good book, Rock Me on the Water, mm. uh, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. Um, I mean, Joni Mitchell was Canadian, but to me, and again, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> you think that the sound, the feel, the world that, this generation of artists that you write about, um, was describing, articulating was a Californian one, a West coast one, as opposed to an East coast one, or is that oversimplistic?
1: I don't know. Um, I definitely think there was a trend kind of starting with the beach boys in 64, where California just was a very commercially successful word to have in a song. Like there is a huge number of songs that talk about California, even if like JT is an East Coast guy who I think basically spent a stint in California coinciding with him dating Joni. And I think there was this brief moment on the sunset lot where all these amazing producers were working um, and people wanted to go and be a part of that in the Laurel Canyon scene. But I I don't really know. Like I think like the, the big moment really was like folk dying. So I think there was a mass exodus from the East Village as sort of that center of the beat era. And I think Joni was like the tail end of that, like her autobiography, like the David Yaffe one, which I absolutely love, Reckless Daughter, highly recommend, um, talks about how she was like one of the last people to be in the coffee shops, to be like handing out the cassette tapes, trying to distribute herself. Um, and so I think that moment passed people did kind of flock to California but I think the lyrics like the the sort of music messaging and wishing for California was was more widespread than the people that actually lived there and I think it it was a word that for that time just kind of became synonymous with like the idea of like freedom and youth um your
0: your book takes place what in, in 19 mostly in 1969 70 yeah 1970 so this was a really, a pivotal year for the history of rock and roll. We went from Monterey pop to Altamont in 1969. Do you, in the book, touch on the sort of the death of the rock and roll dream of this shift from the world of Monterey to the world of Altamont and the violence of Altamont, the cynicism of Altamont from the optimism and dreaminess of Monterey?
1: a little bit, but not in so many words. Like I, I talk about how folk is dying, a dying genre. And I talk about, um, you know, different things that happened at different music festivals, just to sort of set the stage for Jane and Jesse, who are my characters, um, to to give context for their contributions. But it's really, the book is really a moment in time. Like I was really focusing in on these relationships at like Columbia essentially um like I loved the Carol King James Taylor friendship I loved the Jane well in in the real version it's Joni James and Carly but in my version it's Morgan Jane and Jesse I loved those love triangles and and mostly it was just an exploration of how it was a much softer book than kind of what you're describing like my my story is really a look at memory and legacy, and how even after like, the fire of the love fades, the music remains, and you can find these vestiges of these amazing gossipy love affairs, um, hidden in these songs, which are now so revered, like, blue is is just regarded as art, but in its day, it was like pop and salacious. And I kind of love that. Um, Maybe we'll be having this conversation 50 years from now about uh,
0: 1989 by Taylor Swift. We, we certainly will. Uh, you will. I'm not sure I will. Um, <laughs> I hope I will, but that'd be quite a miracle. Um, finally, uh, Emma, uh, I mentioned that I went to the uh, the rough and rowdy ways tour with my son uh, in, in uh, New Orleans. Also, went actually saw him in Santa Cruz. He's 80 years old. Paul McCartney uh, just played. Glastonbury at the weekend some people say it was the best concert they've ever seen and yeah. Heard that one before but certainly it was enormously successful loved it. the crowd loved it the worldwide audience loved it these men are quite literally including Joni Mitchell they're on their last legs James Taylor Joni Mitchell Paul McCartney Bob Dylan in 10 years they're all going to be gone how are we going to remember this generation for you as a as a historian, as a novelist, as someone who loves the music, but has the distance of uh, which, which perhaps your parents or I don't have?
1: It's a fascinating question. I I don't know. Um, I think probably what will happen is some version of the one record phenomenon where they become known by their, you know, prominent, most storied record, like Joni, Court and Spark, which was her album following Blue was actually more commercially successful in its day. It outsold Blue, it won the Grammy. um, But Blue has overtaken Court and Spark by like, a factor of 10 in terms of sales in the 50 years that have come after. And if you have one Joni record, it's probably Blue. Um, And I think, I've thought about this a lot because Joni in particular has tried on so many different hats. Like she she literally she, she,
0: she looks good in hats, right?
1: She loves hats. Um she and she got very experimental like all the way into the Mingus album. Like she's done so many different things. I think part of it was to try to stay relevant and I think part of it was because she's an explorer and she really just wanted to follow her taste, And like, she's self-described as a bee that like draws from the pollen. So like if she's writing more political stuff, it's cause there's more political stuff in her artistic pollen, love that. Um, and I think that probably though, the, the image we'll all have of her like 30, 40, 50 years from now is of her as like a youthful blonde, cigarette smoking, exactly like that image you're showing. Um, Cutting edge song goddess who Broke the mold, and she'll she'll be remembered as that. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with James Taylor because I think he might
0: be remembered as her footnote.
1: <laughs> so he many people really think of it. him as the guy on pbs who like tells stories and i like so like people are much more surprised to learn that he was like once like the young hot guy which he totally was um that bbc concert from 1971 where he's wearing the green vest he's so good looking he just was had that moment yeah no
0: doubt i mean he's definitely in the hall of fame when it comes to looks i'm just not sure about <laughs> his otherwise his ability i'm sure he was good good in lots of things um <laughs> But no, I'm just not convinced uh, as, as a songwriter. Finally, uh, Emma, maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe I'm just envious of his looks and things. Um, <laughs> what about acting. technology? I, I went to the Joni Mitchell website and she is selling a four thousand limited, uh, limited edition of 4,000 uh, uh, 10 LP set. Do you think the only way to listen to Joni these days is? vinyl vinyl has certainly reappeared it's very popular within your generation i, I like it as well is there a, a sort of a? It, it's no coincidence that vinyl is back in fashion at a time when Joni is still very much in fashion
1: i love that yeah i, I think there there is it's a cosmic cosmic coinciding um i mean Joni has made it very difficult to listen to her by taking herself off of spotify (laughs) so you can stream her on itunes if you want to but quite literally vinyl is now the only way to to have and hold her Um, and i i think it's the best i mean i talk about this with jane's album but part of the artistry in blue is that you have to pause to flip the record after blue and i think going through the process of doing that you have this automatic pause that's really magical and kind of gives you a breath. And, you know, it's a 30 minute album. Like this is the kind of of, of record that is made to listen in one sitting and you really do go on a journey with it. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for the bath because then you only have a 15 minute bath. Because well, you, you could have a
0: half it. an hour bath if you fancied it, couldn't you?
1: Well, not if you have to flip the record. <laughs> so right. you have to get up, 50, spoken from experience, you have to get up and flip it halfway through. So you can go over uh, and, it's and wonderful.
0: Thing. It's wonderful that you, you're, you're, you're bringing Joni, I'm not sure if you're reinventing her, but you're bringing her back and James Taylor back to life. It's a, it's a wonderful book, Songs in Ursa Major um that's the hardback cover the softback is just out it's out today so anyone who hasn't read it needs to go out whether you love music or not it's essential reading and you you're gonna have many more books emma so congratulations on that anything else you're reading these days that or listening to that you think uh people would enjoy both in in, as books or, or as the music
1: well, okay. So books, I just finished Bittersweet by Susan Cain. So if you're a blue listener, I actually, she talks a lot about Leonard Cohen in that book. And I was like, what about uh, right, We've mean? done a show on
0: Leonard Cohen. Yeah, a great show on Leonard in uh, Israel. I know Susan Cain. Yeah, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, she's remarkable and that book is wonderful. Like if you have a melancholy or artistic disposition and you're looking to get a grip on it or if you you like the kinds of things we've been talking about, it's a great one. Um, and then I also just read Carrie Soto is Back, which is Taylor Jenkins Reed's new book that's coming out. And it's, I mean, she's amazing. It's just really fun. It's about tennis pros and I knew nothing about tennis, but mm-hmm. um, it's a great like father-daughter book and just super Just right for Wimbledon. Yes, exactly, perfectly timed.
0: And then uh, what are you listening to these days, Emma, vinyl or, or otherwise?
1: I've been listening to a ton of Sarah Gerose. I love her. Um, she's just compositionally so like heads and tails above everybody else right now. And I just absolutely, absolutely adore her work. Um, and I've been listening to the Moana soundtrack. I don't know why, but it's just been top of top of playlist for about a week now i just really like lin-manuel miranda and i love the different like cultural influences he uses and also anything that's gotten the disney treatment just kind of makes you emotional when you're exercising like gets you that extra little burst of adrenaline so i listen to a lot of things